From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha, Wednesday, April 27, 2022. Torah portion this week is Achare, and we had we have been talking about the order of services, or not services, the order of sacrifices that are performed on Yom Kippur in ancient times, by originally by Aaron, the original high priest, and then by subsequent high priests. Over the last few days, we described how this was a very sacred service, a very exclusive service, only done once a year. In that space of the Holy of Holies, the high priest was only allowed to enter once a year. And um, it was a just a momentous and awe-inspiring experience in which he achieved atonement on behalf of himself, his family, the other priests, and of course, the entire Jewish people. Okay, the service of atonement, the sacrificial atonement service, was uh, comprised of a bull, two goats, and other offerings, incense, and blood sprinklings, and application, and burnings of things. That's what went on in in the Holy Temple, in the Holy of Holies, on the day of Yom Kippur. So today, we're going to move on to reading number four, which gets back to general laws regarding animals and slaughter, etc. Let's jump in right now. I'm, I'm going to uh, share my screen. Okay, this is Leviticus chapter 17. Oh, Ray. Hey. Hey, Ray. Welcome back. We lost you for a minute. It's good, to, good to have you back. Well, you're back. You're back and better than ever. Okay, let's do reading for Leviticus chapter 17, number, uh, verse number 1. We begin a new chapter today. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons. So now we know already it's going to be a priestly commandment. Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. Oh, hold on, we're being inclusive now. Now we got everybody. And say to them, so maybe it's not exclusive to priests, maybe it's for everybody. And say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded saying. Any man of the house of Israel who slaughters an ox, a lamb, or a goat inside the camp, or who slaughters outside the camp, but does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer up as a sacrifice to the Lord before the Mishkan of the Lord, this act shall be counted for that man as blood. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. So, if you want to study Torah from a translation, you're in trouble. Why do I say that? Because if you study Torah from a translation, you're going to think something completely different than what the Torah is saying. What the Torah seems to be saying is that if you slaughter an ox, lamb, or goat for supper, for dinner, and you don't bring it to the tabernacle, to the Mishkan, then it's like you murdered, and that person should be cut off from his people. Wow. I can't enjoy a burger? I have to bring it to the temple? What's going on here? 
Obviously, there's more than meets the eye. Um, and what we're talking here is about somebody who is not, sacri- is not slaughtering private meat for a private dinner, but rather somebody who is slaughtering in the context of a sacrificial slaughter. If somebody slaughters an animal in the context of worship, serving God or sacrificing to God, it has to be in the right place. It might be the right animal. You might be using the right tools. You might be doing it otherwise in the right way. But the location is key. There are no offerings to be brought anywhere other than the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the temple, that central location where sacrifices are brought. And the reason for this, number five, is in order that the children of Israel should bring their offerings, which they slaughter on the open field, and bring them to the Lord, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, to the Kohen, and slaughter them as peace offerings to the Lord. If you're bringing a sacrifice, you bring an offering, it has to be done in the Mishkan, in the, ta- in the ta- tabernacle, cannot be done at home. You know, um, for all these um, game shows, I remember like back in the day, they, they came out with home editions of the board games. Like you could play, I don't know what it was, like um, Wheel of Fortune or maybe Prices, I don't know, Prices, whatever. Like, Wheel, like you could play those games, like the home edition. There is no home edition for the temple. That's my point. That was a very long way of saying that. There is no home edition of the Mishkan. You cannot bring... You cannot create a platform, an altar in your backyard and start bringing offerings. It's just not, not kosher, not cool. And uh, the Torah gives a very strong, God gives a very strong warning about that right here in the Torah. Okay, let's jump in. I know we didn't finish the reading yet, but I do want to get to Rashi right away to get some clarity. Okay, and Rashi clarifies exactly what I clarified to you. I asked it as a form of a question and answer. But Rashi just tells it to us straight. When the Torah says that anyone who slaughters an ox, lamb, or goat, Rashi jumps in. Scripture is speaking of slaughtering holy sacrifices, not slaughtering ordinary animals. We're not talking about supper. We're not talking about a barbecue. You're allowed to slaughter an animal for kosher food and enjoy it. You can do a rack of ribs. You can do a steak. You can do, um, you can make chalant. You know, you can cook it in a chalant pot for Shabbos. You can have me, whatever you want. It's not a problem. The, the prohibition here in today's reading is about offering holy, sacrificing and slaughtering, sorry, slaughtering holy sacrifices, not ordinary animals. For scripture continues to offer up as a sacrifice in the next verse. In other words, the context explains this verse. The next verse explains this verse. The next verse says, because you have to bring your offerings to God. Obviously, we're talking about someone who's trying to bring an offering and wants to do it at home. The Torah says, you can't. By the way, by the way, this is something that, and I mentioned this before, this is something that distinguished, distinguished, distinguishes Judaism from other um, worship modalities from other religions or I don't know religions other whatever like in pagan in 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 pagan societies and pagan cultures sacrifices were something that were brought everywhere and anywhere so whether it was in the temple or at home or in your backyard or in the field or you know in the town square you could bring a you can slaughter something they had they had idols they had little figures of idols that they would offer sacrifices to by their own homes Judaism 
was and is markedly different and distinct from this. Judaism, now today we don't, we don't offer animal sacrifices, but I'm saying back in the day, it was radically different. Instead of everyone bringing sacrifices wherever, whenever they wanted, it was only permitted to bring sacrifices, first of all, only certain animals, for certain, at certain, uh, certain days, for certain reasons, and it could only be done in a very specific place. And as I mentioned, Maimonides says this was to kind of move the Jewish people off of this, you know, anything goes with animal sacrifice and into a much more limited um, space, a much more limited sphere of worship to ultimately move, uh, move us off of that whole modality. And again, that's, uh, that's Maimonides and his guide for the perplexed. Your mileage may vary as... Uh, uh, when it comes to, you know, do, does, do all opinions agree with this or not agree with this? Again, that's something that's up for discussion and debate. Nonetheless, we see clearly here that the Torah is putting very strict guidelines on where an offering can be brought. You want to you wanna eat kosher meat? You don't have to. If you want, sorry, let me, let, me rephrase. let me rephrase. You want to eat meat? You don't have to. But if you want to eat meat, there's a kosher way to do it. And you can slaughter the animal in a slaughterhouse. And prepare the meat and buy it at your local uh, butcher, kosher butcher, or your local kosher supermarket. You can, you can, you can, uh, that's how you can get meat. And you don't need a temple for that. But if you want to bring a sacrifice, an offering to God, something else. You need a temple. That's why we don't do it today. We don't have a mishkan. We don't have a temple. We can't do it. Okay, back inside. Let's, uh, let's continue with the Rashis. <coughs> if somebody does bring a sacrifice in their own backyard or anywhere else, then it shall be counted for that man as blood. Rashi explains, as though he had shed human blood. That's pretty severe. Someone who brings an offering not in the temple, it's like he murdered, for which one, for which one is liable to the death penalty. He has shed blood. This comes to include, Rashi says, one who dashes the blood of a holy sacrifice outside the temple courtyard. Not only if you offered, if you slaughtered the animal outside the temple, but if you slaughtered it inside the temple, but then you took out the blood and you dashed it around outside the temple courtyard, that's also problematic. That's also um, uh, liable for the death penalty. And by the way, it seems that this, that this death penalty is not necessarily at the hands of the court, the human courts, but it's a, a divine consequence that would um, potentially happen. Rashi says, this is in order, to, in order that the children of Israel uh, should bring their offerings, which they slaughter in the open field, and bring them to the Lord. In other words, instead, Rashi explains, which they slaughter means which they are accustomed to slaughter in the open field. Not that they should be doing another, but they shouldn't. So that, in other words, Rashi is explaining that this is an order, this prohibition or commandment is an order that the children of Israel should bring the offerings which they might ordinarily slaughter in the open field and instead bring them to the Lord, to the answer of the tent of meeting. In other words, the Torah is not suggesting that we actually do slaughter in the open field, but suggesting that we don't do that rather. Instead, bring it to the temple and that is the mitzvah. All right, let's continue inside. We'll, we'll finish off the last few verses. And then I believe, okay, let's see. What do we have today? Maybe we'll do five also. All right, we'll see. We'll toggle that and we'll see, we'll see uh, what we want to do. 
Um, this is now uh, verse number six. And the Kohen shall dash the blood upon the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Again, the blood has to be dashed inside the temple area, Mishkan area, at least inside the courtyard. And he shall, right, the altar at the end of the tent of meeting means the altar that's in the courtyard right outside that temple building, the Mishkan building. And he shall cause the fat to go up in smoke as a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. That is when you're offering a sacrifice. And they shall no longer slaughter their sacrifices to thee. I don't know how to pronounce this. Satyrs? Satyrs? Perhaps. After which they stray. Um, Joel, you mentioned demons before and dark forces. That's what we got right here, right? They shall know, and, and this is little, literally the Torah saying, do no longer should you sacrifice or slaughter their sacrifices to the other, other forces after which they stray. This shall be an eternal statue for them, for all their generations, for the Jewish people. So the Jewish people should only, should only, um, um, offer sacrifices to God in the Mishkan and nowhere else. Okay, let's, uh, let's, let's pause for some questions or comments or insights. Any questions, comments, or insights? Um, aren't the other forces employed by Hashem too? Yes. I mean, yes, okay. good question. Good question. So, aren't the other forces right? So, in a monotheistic system, it's not like you have another force like, what kind of other force? What are we even talking about? Good. Excellent. So my understanding of this is not that there really is another force, but it goes by the intention. Like somebody who was steeped. Okay. Well, not even someone who is. The Jewish people, they had, it was, were basically a year out from the Exodus. And they had lived in Egypt for a total, a grand total of 210 years. That's a long, that's a fairly long time. I mean, think about it. How long, how old is our country? 1776. So, so in 1986, that would have been 210 years old. I, I mean, I can't remember 1986. I was young, but like, it felt like America was a decently established place in 1986, I think. So 210 years is a really long time. It's a time that, you know, it's like, it's not, it's uh, almost... You know, we, America's a little longer than 210 years, but it's, it's a decent amount. My point, point being that 210 years is a long time to be steeped in another culture. And so idol worship was very much a part of Jewish, not, not everyone, but for many Jews, idol worship or just no, being familiar with idols was something very, um, very common and very familiar. So, or very pervasive, let's say. And so... What's happening here, my understanding is that God is trying to wean the Jewish people off of that type of lifestyle, off of worshiping idols and gods and whatever. And yes, ultimately, whatever you call it, there's no other power outside of God. But in the person's intention, you know, they have in mind an image. I actually Googled, I don't know how to pronounce it. I Googled, oh, Satter? Okay, Satter. I Googled Saturn, and I remember I think I Googled it last year because this demon dude looks familiar. It's um, Greek mythology, one of a class of lustful, drunken, woodland gods. 
In Greek art, they, they were represented as a man with a horse's ears and tail. In Roman representations, as a man with a goat's ears, tail, legs, and horns. Okay? I mean, yeah, does that exist? No. Even if it did exist, its power would be from where? From God. I mean, yeah, 100%. But in a person's mind, in their consciousness, they might have a little statue, a little carving, a little uh, image, and believe that that is all-powerful and then, you know, worship that thing, which makes it prohibited. Basically, the, you're asking a very good question, so, which, which leads us to a deeper understanding of what I, idol worship is. Because you, you can't really worship anything other than God. Because nothing else other than God really exists. There is no other power. But it's not about objective reality. It's about perception or subjective reality. It's like, what does the person think? Is the person aware of the truth? And that seems to be what, where God is, is, um, is directing us. Instead of believing that this little thing or this image or carving or entity has power and therefore worshiping or appeasing it, you got to focus on, on the reality and the real source. God's saying, I want you to live a life aligned with truth and not misaligned with falsehood. And I think that is one of the more noble, if I could say this, it's, it sounds a little bit uh, brazen of me, but it's one of the more noble acts of God to essentially say that I wish for human beings to be aware of the truth. Sure, I could allow them to you know, uh, wander and grapple in darkness and, and believe things that are not true, but I wish to communicate the absolute truth with them so that they know what the truth is. And that's essentially what the prohibition against idol worship is and the prohibition against um, offering to the idols are. So I, hopefully that's, that gives a little perspective. Donna. Rabbi? Yeah. Yeah, so adding on to your conversation, so amulets and symbols and jewelry is not idol worship. Unless they're being worshipped. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So let's just clarify. Donna, if you created a worship necklace, right? Think about it. A worship, I don't even know what that is, but like theoretically, a worship where you, that's a necklace that either other people bow down to or you put it down and then worship, that would be a problem. It's a symbol that's being used to lure, I mean, to pull people away from that absolute truth. That would be problematic. Um, yeah, so one of the classic forms of worship in ancient times was literally offering sacrifices to that purported God, whatever that would be, whatever that image or force or deity would be. So hence the, the prohibition. But it's interesting. It's interesting that, that the name would be mentioned here. You know, Saturn. In the Hebrew, we look back at the Hebrew here. La Seirim. Seirim means goats. So I guess that's... Uh, it says, don't offer, I'll, I'll, I'll put it back on the, on, the, uh, on the screen so you can see it. Okay, one second. It says, I'm going to read in the Hebrew, uh, verse 7, They shall no longer, um, they should no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goats, which they, which they follow uh, a stray after, after which they stray. Okay, so the seirim literally means goats, but it means the, I, the idol image 
that is associated with goats. Anyway, goats on the roof. That apparently is a thing. All right. Um, Mark, welcome. Oh, thank you. Hi. Just in time for uh, the idol worship. <laughs> prohibition. The prohibition against the idol worship. Sorry. I should, I should clarify. Um, okay. So, again, the, 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 simple, the simple mitzvah that we had or prohibition that we had today so far is do not bring your offerings to God, yeah, to Hashem. Right? Do not bring your offerings to Hashem anywhere outside of the temple. There's only one space that you're permitted to bring the offerings, and that is headquarters, HQ. No at home, no uh, nothing else, and don't bring sacrifices to any demons or any false gods. All right, so I'm going to pause here for one moment and share a quick insight, and then we'll go on to the next reading. Quick insight is that the same thing is true in our lives. In our lives also, you know, and I don't mean um, with regards to Jewish ritual because we are meant to pray at home and we're meant to, you know, bring our Judaism and express our Judaism everywhere, you know, at home, in the workplace, have a tzedakah box on your desk, right, all that stuff. Also have some amethyst, have some stones on your desk, right, Donna? Got some, uh, some amethyst. Um, the point is, yes, the point is that we were supposed to have, we're supposed to bring Judaism, Yiddishkeit, bring Hashem everywhere. But vis-a-vis sacri- the sacrificial um, rite, the sacrificial ritual, that's only done in one central location. And again, that's an important message in life. The important message in life is that there's certain things that can be done anywhere. And other things that are really sacred that need a very sacred space, right? We live in a world in which boundaries are blurred and, you know, uh, private things are public and public things are private and, and things are a little bit mixed. So it, this reminds us that certain things are meant to be exclusive to exclusive places. And again, I'm being uh, intentionally vague so that everyone can apply it on their own, Right? whether it regards to privacy or modesty or whatever it is, things have to be in the right place and not, uh, and not necessarily um, not, and not, not in the right place. We'll leave, it, we'll leave it at that. Now, let's continue with the next reading. Let's go with reading number five. So today is Wednesday, so that was four. This is reading number five. Tomorrow is Thursday. We'll do um, six. Then Friday we can do seven and after Torah. Okay. Let's continue Leviticus chapter 17. And you should say to them, God tells Moses, say to them, say to the people, Aaron and the people, any man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who will sojourn among them who offers up a burnt offering or any other sacrifice, but does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to make a sacrifice to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Now that sounds like a similar teaching to what we just had. Right, if you're bringing up, a, if you're offering a sacrifice, but not bring it to the entrance of the meeting, that's problematic. Okay, that sounds again like what we've said, but we'll see Rashi and 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 learn some new things. And any man of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among them who eats any blood, aha, no vampires, no vampiring. I will set my attention upon the soul who eats the blood. Now that's something that you don't want to see, right? God's like, I'm going to set my attention upon the soul who eats the blood. 
Okay. All right. That's, that seems like very uh, a very close look. Um, and I will cut him off from amongst his people. And that is the punishment or the consequence of kares, which is soul excision. Pretty serious deal. Why can't we eat blood? What's wrong with the blood? So he, uh, God explains, for the soul of the flesh is in the blood. Now, does that mean that the, the spiritual soul is in the blood? Maybe. But it also means on a, on a very literal level that the blood is the life force. It's the life force of the person and that, that carries the energy and vitality. Not only the person, sorry, of the living creature. The, the, the creature's life force is carried in the blood. So we're not supposed to eat the blood because that's like eating, consuming the life of the animal. And I've therefore given it to you to be placed on the altar. The blood goes on the altar, not in your mouths, to atone for your souls. For it is the blood that atones for the soul. It's the, the soul of the animal that is in that blood that's taken out and applied to the altar. And that is what creates that atonement or that's the, the ritual. It's not meant to be consumed. Therefore, God says, I say to the children of Israel, none of you shall eat blood. And the stranger who sojourns among you shall not eat blood. You, the stranger, etc. No one shall eat blood. Let's stop here for a moment. And I need to reference something that I once... We taught a class a few years ago. Maybe four years ago. Um, It was an original class and it was called Jews and Food. Jews and Food. And in that class, we spoke a little bit about the prohibition against eating blood. And what I mentioned is... uh, This is from... I think it's from Ramban Nachmanides. Who says... That the blood, on an energy level, the blood contains the full energy of the animal. And if we were to consume the blood, we would take on the spirit of the animal. And that would be incompatible with the human spirit. So the meat of the animal, okay, the meat of the animal, that's not the pure life of the animal. So therefore, we can, we can take that in and take part of the animal in but kind of reframe it and, 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 and elevate it, integrate it into our own bi- biology, and then, you know, elevate it for a higher purpose as it becomes part of us in worshiping God. But the blood itself, that's pure animal soul of the animal. We also have animal soul, but it's the pure animal soul. That's almost too animalistically toxic for the human, the human body and soul. So therefore, no blood. Blood is pure soul. The meat, the flesh, that's something else. That we can already convert, flip, transform. But the blood itself, it's too potent. It's too strong. That's just a bit of an insight, as uh, I believe uh, Nachmanides explains it. All right, back inside. And we'll do some Rashi's, but let's, uh, let's look a little bit. Actually, you know what? Let's do Rashi's right here. Okay, here we go. Rashi explains why the Torah seems to be repeating itself in the opening of this reading with regards to the prohibition against bringing an offering outside the temple. So Rashi says, This passage comes to make liable one who causes the limbs of a sacrifice to go up and smoke outside the temple courtyard, like the one who slaughters a sacrifice outside the courtyard. So not only is slaughtering the animal outside the temple problematic, but even burning the limbs of a sacrifice outside the temple, to cause them to go, up to, uh, to go up and smoke. That means to burn them. That's also problematic. So in other words, let me just give you a scenario. Let's say the person takes the animal 
and slaughters it. It's slaughtered inside the temple, inside the Mishkan. But then that is taken outside of the temple courtyard and burned outside. That's a problem. Unless, to clarify, there are certain sacrifices that we've read about that need to be, that must be burnt outside the temple courtyard. If that's the case, you're fine. But in, in the case where it's supposed to be burned inside the temple courtyard, to burn it outside the temple courtyard would be the same as slaughtering it outside the temple, and that is highly problematic. Consequently, here we go, Rashi explains. Consequently, if one person slaughtered the sacrifice and his fellow offered it up outside the courtyard, they are both liable to the penalty of excision, sole excision, the one who slaughters it and the one who burns it, each one is a separate prohibition and each one is liable for spiritual death. Um, okay, Rashi explains what is spiritual death. What does it mean that the soul is cut off? So uh, literally means from his peoples, but the plural form teaches us that his offspring will be cut off as well as his own days being cut off. So he's going to pass away at a younger age and likewise, God forbid, right? His children will as well. That is part of the consequence of soul excision. Now let's talk about drinking blood for a moment. Um, Rashi explains the juxtaposition, any blood. Since scripture says, for it is the blood that atones for the soul, in the next verse, one might think that a person is liable only for eating the blood of, sac of sanctified things like sacrificial uh, animals. Sacrificed animals. Scripture therefore says here, any blood to include even blood of ordinary animals. In other words, you can't drink, drink the blood of any animal. It's, this is not, okay, when it comes to the prohibition against blood, drinking blood, it's not only the animal that you brought as a sacrifice. That blood, you have to sprinkle on the altar, you can't drink the blood. But uh, dinner, you can have a glass of blood together with your steak. No. Sorry for being gross. No. The Torah says, any blood, all blood, Rashi explains, any and all blood is Prohibited. Okay? Rashi, I will set my attention. This means my leisure. What does that mean? God says, I will make myself free from my affairs and I will deal with this person. In other words, I'm going to cancel all my appointments and focus on the one who's eating the blood. Again, let's not eat the blood. Um, and I'm going to explain to you in a moment why that's very relevant for all of us. For the soul of the flesh of every creature is dependent upon the blood. Rashi explains dependent on the blood. And therefore, I've given it to atone for the soul of man. In this way, one soul, namely the blood of a sacrifice, shall come and atone for another soul. So blood atones for blood. Blood is not meant to be consumed by blood, so to speak. Now, none of you should do this. This means that adults are warned. It comes to warn adults regarding minors not to feed them blood. So not only if you're an adult, can you not eat blood, but don't give your kids blood. I know what you're thinking. Who's going to give their kids blood? I don't know. But maybe they... Huh? Hunters. What? Hunters. Hunters. Okay, could be. I would also imagine ancient times, that was part of it. I'm sure there were blood rituals where they drank blood or consumed you know, blood. It's my understanding that when people go deer hunting for the first time, the first deer they kill, they drink its blood. Oh. oh. Hey there. Well, there you go. For that very reason, they said the soul, the spirit, and the animals, and the blood. I, I think uh, Sarah's um, emoji is spot on right there. Like, whoa! Like, <laughs> that's that's uh, that took me by surprise. And so, if they take their kid, who's a minor, first deer he kills, 
they would have him drink, drink the blood. Every prohibition in Torah is coming from the perspective that somebody at some point has done it. And the yep. Torah says, don't. If it never, if it would never happen, you probably don't need to tell us not to do it. So that doesn't, that, that shocks me on the one hand. On the other hand, makes sense. Makes sense that Torah therefore would have to tell us, don't do that. Now, I want to share something else. And this is something that, you pro- that everyone probably knows here. Um, but I feel like I do want to emphasize this just to clarify how we, how we um, go around this prohibition. Okay? Um, I, I, when I say go around this prohibition, how we deal with this prohibition against blood. Because when you slaughter an animal, we don't have a temple today. So now we're talking about just ordinary food, meat. Again, you don't have to eat meat. No one, Torah doesn't obligate anyone to eat meat. If you want to eat meat, kosher is the way to go. So kosher means a few things. It means the type of animal has to be a kosher animal. We know that for a land animal to be kosher, it has to have two signs, shoe its cut and half split hooves. That's number one. Number two, the animal has to be slaughtered properly. And as we've learned, I believe, you have to cut the both, you have to, one incision that slices through the kana and the veshet, which are the windpipe and the food pipe, the trachea and the esophagus. It has to cut through both of those, okay? One in one fell swoop, one or one or two, whatever, one, you can't apply pressure, you know, like against the neck, it has to be like this. So that's the second point. The next point is, you do an internal examination of the animal, it has to be a healthy animal. Again, these are all things that we've talked about in previous sessions. If you discover that the animal had a fatal illness or that the animal had a compromised internal organ situation, it's not kosher. But what do you mean? It's a cow. It's a kosher animal. It was slaughtered. It doesn't matter. It's not healthy. So again, there's a few checkpoints here. Is the animal kosher? Okay. Was it slaughtered correctly? Okay. Is it healthy? Okay. One second. We're not done yet. Next checkpoint is only certain parts of the animal you can eat. The parts that have that are attached to the fats that are prohibited, you can't, you can't eat. The parts that are attached to the sciatic nerve, you can't eat. So certain cuts, so you have a cow, slaughtered properly, that's healthy, you still can only eat a percentage of the animal. You gotta cut away the rest, the rest is not kosher. And of that small portion, relatively I mean, it's not small, but of the portion of that kosher animal that was slaughtered properly and healthy and the rest was cut away from that kosher meat, you have to extract the blood. You cannot eat the blood. How do you do it? Three steps. Step one is soaking. Step two is salting. And step three is rinsing. You need to do all three steps. You have to soak the meat in water. Then you have to salt the meat with koshering salt. That's why it's called kosher salt. Thick salt that extracts the blood. And then you have to, you have to wash away, you have to rinse off the salt and the blood from the meat. And you do that a number of times until all of the blood is deemed to have been pulled out through this extraction process, the soaking, the salting, and the rinsing. Those are the three, by the way, the mystics, I think even the, uh, maybe the previous Rebbe, 
talked about these three steps in a spiritual and on a spiritual level. What does it mean? Soaking, salting, rinsing spiritually. If you want to become kosher, kosher human beings, right? extract the blood, so to speak. Anyway, we'll leave that for another time because I don't actually remember the details of what, what the spiritual analog was. I can make up ones, but I don't remember the exact original teaching. But it's an interesting concept. The, um, maybe I can look this up one second. I can try to do a quick soaking, salting, rinsing. Rabbi, yeah. Yeah, so I assume when you buy the meat in Costco and it's kosher, that's all, that was already done, right? All this. Um, yes, black yes. Bean and, okay. Correct. Correct. But we used to do it. Yeah, back in the day before, right? Before prepackaged foods, you had to do it yourself. Yeah. Yes. But now... Except for liver. Huh? Except for liver. The liver I get from the co-op. The liver. The co-op, I still have to cash. Good. Except for liver. Liver cannot be... Right. Liver is so steep with blood that this process doesn't work for liver. Right? Unless it's... For liver, for raw liver... To be kosher, free of blood, you have to roast it over a fire, open fire. Because if it's in a pan, it's going to cook back into the blood. It has to be roasted over so that the blood drips out. And that it's that. so when you buy chopped liver, someone had to do that before. If it's kosher, it had to be done before. If you buy raw liver, you have to do it yourself. But otherwise, the meat, if it's kosher and salted and everything, then it's kosher. Um, that's why, I mean, the reality is kosher meat costs more than non-kosher meat. And there's a reason why. It's a certain type of animal, a very highly specific and specialized process for slaughtering it. It has to be checked by, by experts to make sure that it's healthy. Part of it has to be cut away. A lot, many parts of it have to be cut away. And the rest is to be soaked, salted, prepared. And it, it, it takes an army of people to, to prepare that. So anyway, we, are, we live in very fortunate times where it's easy, to relatively easy, to buy kosher meat. It's a little bit more expensive, sure. But it's, uh, yeah, we don't, the manual labor is done, and uh, it's just a matter of, you know, paying the extra, the extra shekels. Um, I do, honest, yeah. That's, that's the big thing. They're now saying, when you get a turkey, you should, you should brine the turkey. Well, kosher turkeys are already brined. What? Wait, say it again? The big thing they say with, with turkey is when you buy a turkey, you should brine it before you cook it. The kosher turkey is already brined. It's already gone through salt water. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. I got to up my turkey game. I'm not, uh, I'm not that familiar with the, <laughs> with the whole turkey stuff. Um, I wanted to share. I, fa- I found the teaching. You ready? The procedure, I'm going to read this. from Hayom Yom, the Rebbe's uh, calendar entry for the 26th day of El. Okay. The procedure of, co- of kashering meat for eating by purging it of forbidden blood is soaking salting, and rinsing. These concepts in spiritual service, soaking means immersing oneself in the Rebbe's words. Salting means having a private audience with the Rebbe, and rinsing is referring to Hasidic song or nigun. So, there you have it. Very much a Chabad teaching. Right? Soaking means you're studying. You're immersing yourself in the teachings. Salting means that you have like a one-on-one soul meeting. And rinsing is with Hasidic, Hasidic music, Hasidic tunes. So there you go. That is uh, a spiritual understanding of soaking, salting, and rinsing to pull out the blood. All right, that is uh, that, is that, and that's regarding the blood. But yeah, the meats, to, to, to answer your question, simply if you're buying meat that's certified kosher, you can 
pretty much be rest assured that it's ready to go. You don't need to do much else. And by the way, if you do see like red, you know, in the package, if it's like running red, it's not, it's not, it's not the prohibitive blood. All that blood is pulled out. That's halachically, it has a different classification. It's not blood, it's whatever it is. Um, but that's, uh, that's a normal thing as well, but that's not, uh, you don't have to worry about that if you see a little bit of red stuff in there. Okay. Good All to right. know. Thanks. Yeah, pleasure. Okay. Um, I am going actually to stop here. We're halfway through the reading, through reading five. So tomorrow we'll, tomorrow's Thursday, which is perfect for reading five. So we'll pick it up halfway through and then we'll go into hopefully reading six as well. And we'll pick it up. I am actually going uh, um, to head back home for a few minutes and to see off Mendel Solish, who's headed back to Chicago, back to Yeshiva. So um, we're going to wish him well on his journey. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, well, I'll thank everybody for being here today. Joy and Donna and Sarah and Ray and Mark and Olia. We got the crew. I, as always, appreciate you guys being here. Oh. A few things. Number one, tonight, 7.30, we're back to Torah studies. It's been a few weeks. We had two weeks off for Passover. We're back to Torah studies. We got a great class. And as I mentioned yesterday, in, in, um, toward the end of the class yesterday, the topic tonight will be the inner dimension of Teshuvah. Yeah, it's easy to bring an animal, relatively easy, back in the day to bring an animal sacrifice. Or Yom Kippur atonement, the, the high priest did his thing and magically atoned. All right, not so easy. There's, are not so fast. There's an internal process of teshuva, of, of personal rehabilitation that we're going to derive from the verses that speak about the Yom Kippur um, experience. So that is tonight. It's a fascinating class. And I am unofficially titling the class, um, what did I call it? Just Move On or Moving On? I don't know. I sent out some email this morning with something about moving on. So that is... A little bit of a clue into the direction of tonight's class. And then next week, so a few things. Number one, I just got word from Dina Schusterman, who's teaching the final RCS Rosh Chodesh Society session, that she needs to push off the class for a week. She has a conflict that came up. So I, we sent out an email yesterday about RCS. This is just, you know, a, 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 we'll send out another email. Don't worry, but just... While I have your attention, RCS is not going to take place the 2nd of May. It will, please God, it will take place the 9th of May, one week later. All right, so that's an important announcement. Um, adjust your, and I apologize about the change, but please adjust your calendars accordingly. And then next, next um, Tuesday, the 3rd, we're having an amazing wine and cheese event. This is going to be, I know some of you are already signed up for it. You definitely want to be here. We have a, an incredible array of wines, imported wines, incredible array of imported cheeses, and we have a sommelier. Is that how you pronounce it? Sommelier, who's going to be sommelier, who's going to be leading a very uh, involved and just multi-layered wine tasting experience. I am blown away. I'm a I'm a simple when it comes to wine and uh, most things actually, but wine also. I consider myself pretty much a simple like wine consumer. This is going to be a multi-layered, multi literally multi-sensory experience, tasting and eating experience. So join us Tuesday night, May 3rd, for Wine and Cheese, the event. All right. Um, it starts at 730. 
still not too late to register. Join us and spread the word. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, great to see you all. I'm going to run. I'm going to send off my uh, my son to uh, Chicago Yeshiva, and we'll see it. We'll see you again hopefully a little a little bit later tonight. All right, take care, everybody. Have a good, have a great day. Pleasure. Take care, everybody.